The gospel lesson is taken from the book or the gospel of Luke. It is chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Here then the gospel of our Lord. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to him, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and he goes to him at midnight and says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, yet because of the man's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. He who seeks, Finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him, the word of the Lord. The final paragraph of the Apostles' Creed is as follows. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I should say the first paragraph, not the final. Last week, I started a series on the Apostles' Creed, and it'll probably be 12 or 13 sermons uh, broken up by a sermon on Pentecost at Pentecost, an ascension about the ascension of Jesus. Uh, Other than that, we will hold to this schedule. Last week, we looked at the words, I believe. There, we discuss the formation of beliefs, that beliefs are formed as we experience life and the world. Beliefs themselves are, can be anything as strong as an opinion to actually believing you have knowledge about something. But all beliefs are a kind of trust. That is, that we come to trust certain things to be true or certain things we believe that we have knowledge about and that this trust actually sets up a relationship with the object 
and we can come to know it and gain knowledge from it. Today, I want to treat the knowledge of God. The creed states, I believe in God. Put simply, the creed envisions that a certain bond called trust or belief brings us into relationship with God. I have two questions for us, though, today to begin this uh, sermon, and they are these. What can we believe and know about God through our own powers? As we are. Now, this is not a question that's off base, for we are created in the image of God, and we have a certain correspondence with our Creator. But what can we know through that relationship? The second question, what can we believe and know about God as he grants us belief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And we will examine that today. In some sense, though I don't like the way it is put, some people will put this this way. What can we know about God through reason and experience, and what can we know about God through belief or faith? The question of God is a fundamental question to be sure. Moreover, there is no subject greater than the matter of God. There's, there's no, no question or topic that is more consequential for your life. Some of you may know of the Great Books series. It's a series of books published by Encyclopedia Britannica at the University of Chicago. And um, uh, it is a book that uh, has all the great thinkers, according to those who chose back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, chose to be the greatest thinkers of all times. 54 books or volumes. Three of those volumes, though, introduce the matter. One is a very slim volume, number one, but the second and third volumes are very thick, and they're called synoptocrons, if I can say it, the great ideas part of that. Two very thick volumes. In the first volume in chapter 29, it has to do with the idea of God. I want to read to you what the editor states there. He says this, quote, with the exception of certain mathematicians and physicists. All the authors of the great basic uh, books that are here and ideas, as represented in this chapter, all of these, uh, and that would be, what, 51 books, very wide. It fills two big bookshelves. He says, in sheer quantity of references as well as in variety, the chapter on God is the largest chapter. He says the reason is obvious. More consequences for thought and action follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question. Did you get that? The most consequential question that you can deal with or matter is God. The 51 volumes in that series, in one way or another, deal with God. There is not a discipline in human life 
that the question of God does not touch upon. It finally touches upon mathematics and physics. It touches upon everything. So if that is the case, then, the creed statement, I believe in God, is an extraordinarily consequential statement. How is it then that we come to believe in God? Some people obviously don't. But most people in history have. Now, they don't have the same idea about God. At the heart of Brahmanistic religion in Hinduism, God is a holy fire. In spite of all the gods, there's something very deep and profound that unites all things, and they describe it as holy fire. They never quite get to the God of the Bible. But they do understand something is holding all things together. That is, something is at the heart of everything that gives it unity. And God is in the Bible described as a holy fire, is he not? The light of nature can tell us a great deal. But why is it that some people today believe firmly in God and others clearly are confused about the question or think it cannot be answered or that there is an answer and that is God does not exist? Well, the first question I want to deal with is, can we know God through nature and through our own powers? Most of us, when we go out at night on a clear night like I did the other night, and I did see all kinds of constellations. I could see the Big Dipper and few others uh, in the sky, very clear. And it uh, was, was a wonderful experience. The night sky, to me, is an amazing, amazing view. Uh, it, it, uh, if you look at it long enough, it makes you ponder the great things. And how insignificant you are in the light of this vastness. How much, though, can we know of this God, I believe in God, through nature? Well, we, we can know some things, apparently. We, we can know that possibly there is a God that exists. Alvin Plantinga, who is considered by many to be the most important religious philosopher in the 20th century, says that he can marshal about 50 arguments that while they are not compelling, they make the notion of God's existence plausible intellectually. And he has set forth those arguments. One of them goes something like this. The argument is this. Things come into existence and they go out of existence. Now, note that matter cannot be created or destroyed. That's a physical law. As far as we know, that, that holds true. But things come into existence as an organized being and go out. This is true of stars, and it's true of people. Now, in our experience, there is something that exists at all times in our little slice of time. But let's expand time to eons and eons and eons. There should be a time when nothing exists, because everything would be out of existence at the same time, given enough time. But our experience is that something exists. So why does something exist? Well, it exists if there is one behind the scenes, so to speak, who holds all things together and brings things into existence. 
and never lets things lapse entirely. And that being can be called God. Now that seems to me to be a pretty plausible argument. But that is not as persuasive today as it once, let's say, in the Middle Ages. A person can argue something like this, and I hate to be philosophical, but let me do, just do this a little bit. A person can say, well, listen, the power that starts everything only has to be as big, big enough to get everything started, and then itself could go out of existence because inertia would continue to carry it on. So therefore, that is not as persuasive as it might have once been. In fact, most people will say that the strongest way to disprove the existence of God has nothing to do with these intellectual arguments, but a moral argument. People will say to me all the time, you know, it seems plausible that there is a God, but I really can't come to believe that there is a God because there's so much evil in the world. There's so much injustice. There may be some power, but it is not personal. If it were personal, this thing, and had feelings and compassion, they would not allow these things to happen. Now, that even seems to be more persuasive in the modern world. And some people say, you know, I can't believe in God. It's recorded that a number of Jewish people have said, how can we any longer believe in God after Auschwitz. True enough, there is plenty of evil in the world. But the creed says, I believe in God. Now, if we're talking about the God of the philosophers or the gods that human beings make up, then we have a very small God. But when the creed says, I believe in God, we're talking about something entirely different than what might be led one to believe in those cases or not believe in. What if it is that God exists and God is so distant that we can never prove him or disprove him? When the book of Genesis opens up, does it offer up an argument for the existence of God? Does Moses get down and say, well, let me offer up some Arguments so that people could be on the same page. Let me set forth some, some of the Greeking that we, uh, thinking that we find in Egypt and among the Greeks. Does he do that? He doesn't offer up one intellectual or moral argument for the existence of God. He just simply says, in the beginning, God. Now, I think Moses came to believe in subsequent people in the history of Israel, that one could not prove the existence of God, for he is bigger and grander and greater than all of our thinking, and that if we are to know this God, he must reveal himself to us. We can, through these arguments, get some kind of impression that something is very big behind everything, but it may not be the God of the Bible. You can't get to goodness and grace and forgiveness with just a power. What does Moses do? In the beginning, God. And he begins to describe God's relationship with human beings. And throughout history, Israel begins to learn of the word hesed, the covenant mercies of God. 
In our text today in the gospel, Jesus too does not offer up an intellectual argument or a moral argument for the existence of God or to disprove God. He simply says, pray ye this way, our Father, our Father. Jesus believes in God, obviously. He teaches his disciples to believe in himself, the very expressed image of God. John taught his disciples a kind of prayer. They taught, wrote prayers, yes, back in, in the scriptures in the time of, of the New Testament. Each rabbi was expected to teach, or each teacher teach their disciples a prayer that they could pray together. They say, teach us to pray. John taught his disciples. So John taught his disciples to pray. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, never dealing with the intellectual or moral issues that could be raised. It's simply to say, pray this way, our Father. Our Father in Matthew, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, how did they come to this prayer? Because they believed that God had revealed himself in the history of Israel. All the way through the scriptures, God dealt in a covenantal way with our forefathers and foremothers, all the people of Israel in the past. And he revealed himself historically in history, in a special kind of history. He revealed himself to the people of Israel. And they were to take that knowledge and to make it known to the nations. If you will, they were a light set on a hill. They were to take that to the nations. For God had come to them and revealed himself to them and they experienced the presence of God. Now, this, this is the crucial point. When we come to the creed and it says, I believe in God, most of us believe in God not because of intellectual arguments. Most of us believe in God not because there are thorny questions that are difficult to answer. But we believe in God because we have experienced him in our hearts and our lives, just like Israel did. Why would Israel, even a remnant, continue to persist in all of the persecution? And all of the temptations to idolatry would continue the worship of God. Alvin Plantica points out that once you experience something like this, you just don't give it up because there are a few objections that can be raised. It's too consequential. He says, why don't all of these doubts and fears and scare tactics by modern secularists affect the pious grandmother in Iowa? who gets up and prays every day. It is because she is experiencing the presence of God and all of these arguments, you might as well just, it's just like water rolling off a duck's back. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. This is inviting us to experience God. 
As we experience Christ, we experience his Father. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Let me say that each one of you today in your affirmation of God, it's not just a formal creed that you come through, though that's, that's fine and good and should be kept in mind. But you believe in God because you believe that you have come to know God in Christ and that you have experienced him. Let me say that what you have received is indeed a true gift. It didn't come to you through your own powers as you begin to reason and think, you know, human beings have amazing powers. I'm reading a book about people who, who know languages to such a degree, uh, 49, 50 languages. They can learn to speak a language in a month or two. All they have to do is hear it. They remember everything. There have been people in the past, two or three examples in the 19th century, where one person actually learned 70 languages. An amazing feat. Look at those people who, who put together the, the OED, the greatest dictionary in the history of the world, maybe the greatest intellectual feat of all time, the Oxford English Dictionary, volume after volume after volume, tracing the history of words. It is amazing what human beings can do. Look at the conceptualism of a Newton or an Einstein. Their ability for abstract thought off the charts. They have no trouble with little abstract mathematics that some of us struggle with. Amazing. When Newton wanted to grind his lenses and he ran up against a wall, he invented a kind of calculus so he could continue his work. It was just a tool that he needed. It's like going out and fashioning a tool so you can dig in the ground. Amazing. All of this power, though, cannot get you from the notion that there may be something behind all things to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who forgives all of your sins. Where do you get that kind of idea? You don't get it from yourself. You don't get it through your own powers. No matter how much we can do and how much we can think, we still are finite. We're still in a box, if you will. In a box. We can only go so high, though the ceiling may be high, we can only go so high. We can only go so deep, so wide. We are finite beings. And when we think about the infinite, we, we, we are in territory that's beyond us. But what if this infinite, in fact, has come to us? In fact, he has. In the person of Jesus Christ. And we come not only to believe in God, but we come to believe in his fatherhood and his goodness and his grace. Yes, there is much in life seems to contradict that. But my overwhelming experience is that God is good and love. And one day we say, I'm finite. Maybe I will understand that in heaven. This is so consequential. It changes your thinking when you come to believe in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You enter into an entirely different world. You begin to look at things differently. You look at the political realm differently. 
You look at the social realm differently. You look at the economic realm differently. You have different views and philosophies of right about the relationship between parents and their children. It changes your life. It is absolutely consequential for everything. And so when we come to this text, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to his Father in heaven. And we experience that deep within our soul. We know that we have received a gift. It doesn't come from us. It is not natural, if you will, in one sense, to believe that sins can be forgiven, wiped clean. Apart from God, there is no forgiveness. There is karma, but there's no forgiveness. That is in Jesus Christ. This is a marvelous text. This prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. He's bringing them into the presence of God. But notice, it is God who initiates the process. He sends his son to come and stand with us on our side and to teach us how we might experience the presence and fullness of God. There's a bumper sticker that people laugh at. And I think I've laughed at it. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have. (laughs) In ignorance. And the bumper sticker is, I know that God's alive, for I've prayed to him today. Now that started back when Thomas Altizer, a man who grew up about five blocks from me, about ten years older than I am, who wrote a book, God is Dead. Late 60s, 70s. God is dead. And lots of people began to pronounce that God is dead. They believed what Ludwig Feuerbach, the first real modern atheist in 1850s, wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity, in which he says God is a projection of the human mind. And then Nietzsche reads it and says, yes, we invented God. God did not create us. We created God. And then Freud picks it up in the 20th century. Yes, it's a projection of the father figure. Well, my friend, we know better. We have experienced God deeply in our hearts and lives, and we have seen love and compassion like you will never see apart from knowing him. We know his fatherhood and his forgiveness. We know what it means to have a second chance. We know what it means to have compassion on a person. And that is only found not through the powers of human beings or their ability to reason. It is God's gift to you in Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Receive him, my friend. Confirm your belief today. Make your calling and election sure. Amen.